All right. Good morning, Reach Montreal, and uh, everybody joining us online. Um, it's good to be here to be able to do this um, again uh, and use these platforms to still stay connected uh, together as a church and as visitors. Um, really quick, before we jump into this morning's teaching, I just want to uh, put something on your radar uh, this coming Wednesday. For everybody that is part of Reach Montreal, uh, Wednesday, June 17th, uh, Raquel, my wife, and I will be hosting a conversation just around the gospel, race, and justice. And we'll be looking specifically just at some of the ways that for us here uh, in real life and in our city, how we can respond to some of the conversation and some of the real uh, troubling events that we've seen in the media over the last few weeks especially um, and how we can respond. So we're going to have some some guests uh, join us and have kind of a panel discussion around some of these issues and make it as conversational um, and as pastoral as possible to see how we can be equipped as the church to um, to do this well, uh, to live the gospel out well. Um, so, this week, uh, as we continue our series, if you remember last week, we started a new series. We started a brand new series called Scripture, God's Word, Our Lives. And if you missed last week, I just want to encourage you to go back, um, listen to the audio, jump on YouTube, watch the video, because uh, it's very important as, as last week's sermon really set the course for us on how we're going to approach this series. We started with the question of kind of like, how do you feel about the Bible like currently? What is your relationship with the Bible? And what we try to do is just open up this series to create some space for us to really be honest with some of the questions and some of the, the, the problems and some of the tensions that we feel towards the Bible and what the Bible does say and maybe what the Bible doesn't say. Um, and we also kind of started the series looking at what Jesus taught about the Bible, how Jesus related to the Bible and how he looked at it as both human and divine as he understood the Bible as both having these divine qualities about the revelation of who God is and what God is like, but also that it was brought through real human voices, real human authors, and that we don't need to scrub kind of the divine fingerprints off of Scripture, and we also don't need to scrub the human fingerprints off of Scripture. Because the Bible is this testament across history that has many human authors, but one divine author in what it claims and teaches. And we started this series with a specific definition of the Bible that we're going to be using as we go through. I just want to remind you of it, throw it up here for you. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, that tells one unified story leading us to Jesus. Leading us to Jesus is the part that I want us to focus on this morning. Uh, so let me pray for us as we look at that. Uh, Father, we just thank you. Thank you that the Bible, even at its, at its um, base understanding, is just this amazing testament of a God that, that speaks, that knows, that desires relationship. And we just ask that uh, this morning, that as we approach this again, that you would give us eyes to see that you give us ears to hear what it is that you want us to, and that it would point us to you. It would bring us closer to relationship and closer in relationship with you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, start with a question. Start with a question of us. If you could travel back in time, and you could be, like, in real life, in flesh and blood, in any biblical event that's listed, okay, you could actually be there, what would it be? What would it be? 
any event at all from the pages of Genesis all the way through to Revelation? What, what is what some of the things that you can be like, oh man, I, I wish I could be there or I'm looking forward to being there. What is it? Maybe it's the moment of creation. Maybe it's that moment where there was nothing and then all of a sudden there was something because God spoke. Uh, maybe it's with Noah trying to figure out what in the world that was about, right? And what do we do with the dinosaurs? Um, maybe it's, it's the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, maybe it's the walls of Jericho coming down. Maybe it's David slinging a rock out of his slingshot and hitting Goliath right between the eyes. Uh, maybe it's just kind of like this gorgeous uh, Solomon's temple and seeing how that was built and made and, and what uh, just the grandeur of, of that. And maybe it's a specific moment with Jesus. And obviously there's lots that we could choose from there, a specific teaching or a specific moment with Jesus Well, if I answer that question, the text that we're going to look at this morning is probably one of my top picks. This is probably the moment uh, that is at the top of my list for where, when a moment that I would have wanted to be able to be there. Um, And it happens in Luke 24. We're going to read a chunk of it together. Starting in verse 13, here's what we read in Luke's gospel. That same day, speaking of the resurrection, the day of the resurrection, Two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and they discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. And he asked them, hey, what what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? What are you talking about? And they stopped short, stopped in their tracks, and with sadness written across their face. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You've got to be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there in the last few days. I just love that. There's, There's definitely some comedic humor in this. And Jesus' answer, What things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped, so they're disappointed, we had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning and they came back with an amazing report. They said that his body was missing and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see and check that out. And sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. And Jesus, a little bit later, further down, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, this anointed one, should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's the, uh, that's the exciting part there. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is such an amazing passage because talk about a Bible study that you would have wanted to be there for. Talk about a podcast episode that you would have wanted to hear live, right? 
that conversation where Jesus shows up and actually opens up the scripture and goes and shows these two disciples how all of it anticipates him and points to him by far would be one of my favorite moments in the New Testament. And what's really, really interesting is a few things. There's lots interesting about this passage. But there's a couple things I want us to really focus on this morning. Um, first of all, the two disciples notice that they have all the evidence and all the proofs of Jesus' resurrection, the same that we do. Okay, so they're struggling with doubt. They're really struggling with disappointment because something doesn't sync up with their expectations of who Jesus said he was and what actually happened. And so they're, they're in a moment where they're discussing this together and they're disappointed that this revolution that was supposed to start, this inbreaking of the kingdom is not coming to fruition the way that they had expected. This movement that they wanted to be a part of is in their estimate, in their view, it, it's over. They actually say that they hoped that Jesus was the one. They hoped that Jesus was the one to come and redeem Israel the one that history had anticipated, the one that was going to come to to conquer and restore peace, shalom to Israel. And then Jesus enters the conversation. I love that. Jesus shows up and they can't see Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus. Now I have no idea what that means, but it's Jesus, okay? So uh, he could do it. And so, so they show up, he shows up. They don't recognize him for what it is. They're kind of kept from seeing him. But here's what's interesting about that is that that actually is a vital foreshadow. It's kind of pointing us to the bigger reality that they're unable to see Jesus in the scriptures. So not only are they not able to see Jesus when he appears to them, but this also foreshadows the conversation that's about to happen because they're unable to see Jesus in the scriptures. And they're arguing about it. They're having a debate. Uh, The Greek is really strong there. They're not just having a conversation. They're actually having a heated argument. There's like a forceful difference of opinion. So think Twitter, okay? They're on Twitter. They're keyboard warrioring it up against each other and having this heated debate. And Jesus shows up into this heated debate, into this discussion, into the conversation. And rather than solve it for them, rather than kind of show up and be like, gentlemen, do not argue, right? And kind of do Jesus-y stuff or jump like right into answering all the questions that they're arguing about. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus questions them. Jesus asks questions of them. Now, Jesus could have just shown up and said, gentlemen, it's me. Let me answer all of your questions. But he doesn't. He asks them questions. He asks things of them. Now, this is really important about the posture that we see in and through Jesus. The three questions that he asks, he shows up and first he says, so what are you guys talking about? What's, what's this going on? I heard you, like you're having this heated conversation, this Twitter in real life. What, what, what are you talking about? Second, he says, so, so what happened? What, what actually happened? Tell, tell me that. And they're, they're blown away that he doesn't know or that he's pretending to not know, right? That's like, are you the only person? Really? Do you live under a rock? Like, where, where have you been? How did you not hear this? Because um, in even outside of the Bible, we know that this was, this was a big deal. Everyone, everyone knew that this thing had happened to this historical Jesus of Nazareth. So he's going like, how do you not know this? Where are you from? And the third question, wasn't this what you expected? Wasn't this what you, what you knew the Messiah needed to do? Or, or no, did you, did you expect something different? Now, another way to understand those three questions 
is that Jesus, first of all, calls attention to how they, they feel. And, and, he, and he talks about how they feel because they're obviously emotionally invested in this conversation to the point that they're actually arguing and debating. And he's coming and he's saying, so what's, what's important to you right now? Emotionally, what are, you, what are you thinking about? What are you feeling about what's happened? And I love that, that that's the posture that Jesus has in this conversation. That there's tenderness, there's a gentleness, there's, there's a real personal care that Jesus shows for these disciples who are really trying to wrestle with, with kind of the, their doubts and their uncertainties and their questions and they're trying to figure this out and he's, he's tender. He calls attention to how they feel in that moment. Secondly, the second question calls attention to what actually happened. So then he goes and says, well, let's revisit the facts. Let's talk about what actually did happen. Tell me again what happened. Let's go through it. Let's, let's go back so that we can return to this moment and, and really understand it. And then the third question is that he actually then corrects their interpretation of what did happen. He corrects their expectations and interpretations of what did happen. And this whole conversation is highly, highly relational. Why? Well, because Jesus shows up and asks questions of them because in doing that, he's getting to know them. Questions allow us to get to know someone, not just get to know what someone knows. When we ask questions of someone, we're communicating relationship. We're communicating value of someone, that they they matter, that there's something about them that matters. And even if we're going to disagree with their, their views or their feelings or their perspective, there's something about asking questions and allowing answers that communicates real care. And, and also, asking questions shapes someone's thinking. It actually guides them towards a desired end, a desired answer to this. And why this is important is because relationships aren't just built on facts. Relationships, especially our most meaningful ones, aren't just built on information. Imagine if you met somebody and you started your relationship with like, hey, uh, not where are you from or, hey, tell me your story or, hey, what, what's your life been like? I mean, where did you grow up? Hey, what, what, what do you do for a living? What are you passionate about? If you didn't start there, which is all story, and you started with a fact sheet where you just kind of showed up and someone started to tell you their life story and you said, nope, give me your fact sheet. Bullet points, please, right? Just give me, give me the information about your life. Well, that's not how relationships are formed. And rather than just show up, and answer all their questions, all these disciples' questions, what Jesus does is he actually asks questions of them. He asks questions of them, and in the process, he teaches them to ask better questions. He teaches them to ask the right questions. He corrects their interpretation of things that they already know. And I also love that Jesus doesn't show up and kind of criticize them or blast them for unbelief. He doesn't show up and just go, just have faith and then like float away, right? Or say, do not doubt and then like do something Jesus-y. He doesn't. Instead, he actually comes and he, he corrects their interpretation of what they already do know. And that's key to this. That, that they have the same evidence of Jesus' resurrection as we do. 
that, that we have the exact same experience of the facts, the, the evidence that's reported. And then what happens is we now make a decision about our interpretation of and our understanding of those same facts. So he doesn't show up and just give them facts. He shows up and offers them an alternative explanation of the same facts that they already know. And that's key for us today when we approach the Bible, when we understand the Bible, because so often in the debates around kind of evidence and, and the Bible, uh, what, what ends up happening is those things are pitted against each other. But, but in reality, we all have the same evidence. Uh, we just have different explanations of the evidence. And that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? That, that the evidence that we have is that, hey, we're here, we're human beings, uh, and then we're going to come up with explanations as to how we got here, why we're here, and what life is about, and all of those things. But all of those things aren't evidence. Those things are explanations of evidence. And Jesus points these two disciples to that. And I love that, again, I mean, tenderly, Jesus says like, oh, foolish ones, right? And that's not like uh, a bold kind of like morons, right? Like that's not what Jesus is doing here. He, he, instead, he's kind of going like, oh, silly guys, you missed it, right? You, you actually, you missed this. And notice what he says. He, does, he doesn't talk about them, them missing knowledge and needing knowledge. He says, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke, and then a few verses later, when Jesus appears to a bigger group of disciples, he talks about doubts arising in their hearts, not their minds, but in their hearts. So when Jesus says, oh, foolish ones, he's not challenging their knowledge. He's challenging their heart posture towards what they already know. And by doing this, Jesus actually questions their hearts before he questions their minds. And that is going to become so important for us as we get into this series and go throughout it as we approach different sections of the Bible, as we learn different methods of how to actually read the Bible, that Jesus always starts not with information and forming our minds, but a formation of our hearts by questioning the answers that we have given about the things about life. That's so important. So also in this, as followers of Jesus, we saw this last week that Jesus has a high view of the Bible, right? That he, he sees it as authoritative. He sees it as instructive. And he holds a very, very high uh, perspective on what the Bible is and what the Bible's for. And in doing this and in having this conversation with these disciples, Jesus is inviting them and us to assume that when we run into tensions in the Bible, that when we come into interpretations of things in the Bible that are troubling or that we don't understand or that we just kind of, we have a differing interpretation of something the Bible does say, Jesus is encouraging us to assume that scripture itself is actually clear and correct but that our interpretation is not. That the Christian perspective on the Bible is that it, it is without error in all that it teaches about the nature and character of God and the human condition and the story of redemption. It's, it's all true. There's no errors in that. And that if there is a contradiction or a, a supposed error that we find, Jesus is inviting us to have the posture of maybe my interpretation of this is incorrect. So, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, is far too simplistic. It more ends up becoming something like the Bible says it, 
I can't read it because it's not in English. Someone else translated it. I then interpreted it and came up with an explanation for it. Then I tried to understand it. And then Jesus corrected my understanding of it. That settles it. See how quickly that changes and see how complex that becomes when we understand that we're not just talking about facts and knowledge. We're talking about our interpretation and explanation of what God has done throughout history. And then Jesus does exactly what we do every week and daily as followers of Jesus and weekly as a church gathered is that Jesus opens up the scripture and what? interprets and explains it to these disciples. He shows them not what they missed, but who they missed. Jesus is showing them and us that he's not only the destination of all that scripture talks about, but that he's also the way to get there. And that's, that's a big deal. And last week I introduced you to a term of like Christological or Christocentric, meaning that the Bible is centered on Christ. It points to Christ and points us back to Christ. It, it looks to him coming to fulfill all that scripture teaches. And then for us on this side of redemptive history and the cross, it now scripture points us back to Jesus, that he's the centerpiece of all times, of all history, of everything that scripture teaches. And Jesus teaches that. He teaches that the Bible is a library of, of writings, human and divine, that find their fulfillment and their end and their meaning in, in him. And so practically for you and I in 2020, living in the West, in whatever city we're in, what this means practically for us is that we need to be very careful never to settle with seeing the Bible as being about you and me. The Bible is not about you. It's not about me. It's, it's a self-disclosure of who God is and the lengths that he has gone and is going to pursue broken people, to love and rescue and heal broken, sinful humanity. That is what the Bible is about. And that he loves you and me despite us, not because of us, not because of our general awesomeness. And he accepts you and me as we are, but promises to change us and give us a new heart and change and transform our minds and give us a brand new life through what Christ has done on the cross. Now, when the Bible's about that, instead of it just being kind of self-help pick-me-ups or, or uh, daily uh, lessons for felt needs, that changes everything. And it's so possible that as Westerners approaching the Bible for us, we end up missing who the Bible is actually about. And that's what we want to do over this series, continue to see how to read the Bible, how to apply the Bible, and kind of shed some of the cultural baggage that we have around the Bible. Uh, Andrew Wilson in his book, Unbreakable, he reflects on this same conversation that we see here between Jesus and these two disciples. And watch what he says, I love this. Imagine hearing this for the first time, the two disciples. Jesus saying, this massive, sweeping story all points to me. This multi-volume collection of laws, wise sayings, songs, stories, visions, and poems finds its climax in yours truly. I've come to fulfill it all. I'm what it was all about in the first place. I'm the turning point in the movie, the headline act, the show stopper, 
I'm the World Cup final. I'm Frodo and Sam casting the ring into the fiery lake. Speak in my language. I'm the Sistine Chapel. I'm the moment you've all been waiting for whether you know it or not. I love that because what a, what a moment, right? That Jesus just starts to unpack the scriptures to, to go back and, and, and correct the interpretation and explanations of what they already know. And if you notice what Jesus does, what he opens up, obviously he doesn't open up the same Bible that you and I have. He opens up the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures, and he calls it the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that is what the Hebrew Bible is made up of. Um, there's a, an, uh, a three-letter kind of acronym that's used for that. It's, it's T-N-K. It's the Tanakh. Say Tanakh. Give it some throat marvelous, right? Tanakh. And what it is, is it stands for these three sections of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. T stands for Torah, which is the Pentateuch, these first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That it, It's sometimes also called the Law of Moses. Uh, the N stands for Nevi'im, which is prophets, Hebrew word for prophets, plural. And that includes the major and minor prophets, all throughout the kind of big middle section of prophetic literature in the Old Testament. And major and minor don't mean important or less important. It speaks of the, the size of these books of, of prophetic um, literature. And then the K, Tanakh, the K stands for Ketuvim, which is a Hebrew word for writings. And that kind of just is everything else. That's wisdom literature. That's the Psalms, Proverbs. Um, and in its original Hebrew Bible, that's also Daniel, uh, which speaks to, which, which helps us understand what Daniel's actually doing. Um, so that, that's really, really interesting. So what Jesus is doing though, is he's saying, when he says law and prophets and writings, he's saying the entire thing. <laughs> the, the entire thing. The, the Old Testament in its entirety speaks to what I have done and, and I fulfill what it anticipates. It points to Jesus and finds their fulfillment in Jesus. And that's not to say as Christians that the New Testament comes and replaces the Old Testament. Since in fact, the New Testament actually makes no sense without the Old Testament. And so for us, we have this amazing opportunity uh, in this point in history to have kind of Old Testament, New Testament, kind of before Jesus pointing to Jesus and all the things that speak about the witness of Jesus pointing back to Jesus. And then we have all of it. And we'll talk about how those books came into their final form as we have them in this series. But it's just interesting to kind of understand. It's like it takes a little bit extra work to understand the Old Testament because of how distant we are from it culturally and historically. But the two hold, hold together. That the New Testament uh, quotes the Old Testament over 300 times and alludes to things in the Old Testament more than 4,000 times. That the Old Testament is the shadow of something that points us to the substance revealed in the New Testament of Christ. That the Old Testament is full of promises and the New Testament is pointing to the fulfillment of those promises. Now the Apostle Paul in the first century writes in 2 Corinthians 1 that, that all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. And he goes on to say it, it finds their amen in him, meaning there's a fulfillment, there's a confirmation of all of these things that were anticipated. Now, in this conversation though, how do we actually approach scripture like that? I mean, I, I, we don't know what scriptures, what verses Jesus pointed to in that Bible study with those two disciples, right? We don't know. It doesn't tell us, but, it, but it's fun to imagine. 
It's fun to imagine what Jesus could have been doing by looking at the entire Old Testament and what he drew out and pointed those disciples' attention to. Maybe Jesus started in Genesis 1, and he started with this amazing act of creation, and he revealed this Trinitarian God, God the Creator, God the Word who became the Son, and God the Spirit, all present in the act of creation. Then maybe he moved to Genesis 3.15 after something terrible had happened to the human condition where we chose independence from God and pursued sin. Maybe he stopped in Genesis 3.15 and looked at the very first promise of a redeemer who's going to come and and trace that throughout all of history and scripture. Maybe he he paused on the tree to show in the garden to show that these disciples that it it foreshadowed the tree that Jesus just hung on days before. Uh, maybe Jesus lingered in Genesis 22 looking at Abraham placing his only son on the altar as a way to point to the only son of God coming to lay his life down for all people. I think he certainly paused in Exodus at the Passover looking at how God has always been after freeing slaves. Maybe he paused uh, in the delivery of the law of Sinai with Moses and Israel that calls for us to care for orphans and widows and to go and love our neighbors and to accept and bring in the strangers and the others. Maybe he unpacked the Levitical laws and showed how all of those things and all of those sacrifices pointed to his holiness and him laying his life down. Maybe he paused at the day of atonement in Leviticus 16 and focused in on the spotless, innocent lamb who shed its blood and carried the sin of the community out into the wilderness to foreshadow what he was going to do for all people. Maybe he highlighted the tabernacle and later the temple throughout the Old Testament so that it looked forward to him, God himself, coming and dwelling among us and him taking up residence with us as the God-man, Jesus Christ. Maybe he paused in Isaiah 53 looking at the suffering servant, which in crazy detail, amazing detail, prophesies about the suffering of this servant who is God, who is going to save humanity. Maybe he paused on some of the Psalms like Psalm 22, which starts with the line that Jesus utters with his last breath on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then continues on in that Psalm to just rejoice in this God who will not, who will not allow enemies to be undefeated and will not allow injustice to stand. Maybe he highlighted the end of the Old Testament in Malachi 3, which says, suddenly Yahweh the Lord will come to his temple and he shows those disciples that he in fact had already come to the temple. Or even bigger than that. Maybe, maybe that's not how Jesus approached this conversation. Maybe he highlighted the thousands of years anticipating the, the prophets and the priests and the kings who ultimately all failed, pointing to Jesus coming as the final prophet speaking on behalf of God, the final priest mediating between God and God's people, and the final king who would usher in a brand new kingdom reign over all heaven and earth, maybe. Or maybe, 
Maybe he just took the covenants throughout the Old Testament. He looked at the covenant relationship and commitment between God and Adam and Eve or between God and Noah or between God and Abraham or between God and Moses or between God and David or Jeremiah's mention of a new covenant that's coming that Jesus himself fulfilled. Maybe. But do you see why I would have wanted to be there? That moment would have been one of the most amazing moments to be there for, to watch Jesus, God's word in flesh, show us all of the ways that we may have missed out on seeing the fingerprints of God across human history. What an amazing moment. That would have been incredible, just incredible. And this is exactly Jesus's point in Matthew 5, and I alluded to this last week, where Jesus is talking to the religious teachers and, and he says, like, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't, don't hear me doing that, but I came to fulfill them. And anyone who dumbs them down or trivializes them or says they're irrelevant or they're just for a cultural moment will be least in the kingdom of God. Jesus took this very seriously. Jesus didn't deconstruct scripture. He showed that it was all leading and all being built towards the fulfillment in him. And, and Jesus coming and saying that he fulfilled it doesn't mean that it's the end of the story. And that's the best part. It's not the end of the story. It actually just means that Jesus came to fulfill all of that to begin writing a new kind of story. Hence, fulfillment. And we, we, we know this, we speak about this in different ways, but you know, a couple examples would be when a couple is, is approaching their wedding and they, they get to the marriage day, the wedding day, and they share their vows, what are they doing? Well, they're fulfilling their engagement to each other. Or when you take a trip and you go on vacation and you arrive at your destination, you're fulfilling your travel, but your vacation is just beginning. The marriage is just starting. The vacation is just starting. And with Jesus fulfilling all that is spoken of in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets and the writings, what he's saying is now I'm ushering in a brand new lived experience for all people who see this and accept this, and enter into this. And although Jesus saw all of scripture as this macro level story pointing to him, he doesn't see it as ending with him and in him. We, we don't understand the Bible unless we read it in light of who Jesus is, but also as an invitation to experience the life that Jesus offers. And Jesus does this in, in John 5, again, speaking to the religious leaders, speaking to people who can quote the Bible like you and I never, ever will. Like just an amazing knowledge. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that it's in the scriptures, knowing the scriptures that you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness about me yet. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That is so vital to understand that as Jesus is unpacking this with these disciples, notice what he's doing. He's not just allowing them to stop with knowledge of the scriptures. He's showing them that all the scriptures point to a relational knowledge of him, a lived experience. So for you and I today, thousands of years later, thousands of miles away from the original uh, cultural context and in and, and, and a geographical place where these things happen, it is not enough for us to know the Bible, 
It's not enough for us to study the Bible, to read the Bible, to believe the Bible and to quote the Bible. We need to live life with the God of the Bible. And that's the entire point. When approached properly, when approached rightly, we don't use the Bible. The Bible is not something to be used. Instead, we we search the Bible while it searches us. We ask questions of the Bible while it asks questions of us. We explore the heart of the Bible while it explores our hearts. And that's exactly what Jesus does with those disciples in Luke 24. Uh, The author of Hebrews mentions this exact same point about the word of God and the role of the word of God across all of history. Listen what it says in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living, not dead letters on a page, not irrelevant things about a, a culture that's not us, but the word of God is, is living. It always has been living and it always will be because it gives life, right? For the word of God is living and active, not passive, to be observed or studied, but active because it observes and studies us. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. It's that precise. And of joints and marrow, that precise. And it discerns the thoughts and intentions of what? the heart and no creature none is hidden from it his sight but all are naked exposed to the eyes of him to whom we all must give an account now that's one of my favorite statements in scripture about the nature of the word of god and it's just amazing to see that it actually discerns the intentions of the heart which is the exact same thing jesus does with those two disciples isn't it doesn't just come and challenge their knowledge. He doesn't just come and debate facts. He comes and he actually asks questions of their heart. He asks questions of their expectations. He asks questions of their interpretations. And all of that is is heart-level stuff because it's relational. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, who passed away recently, wrote a book called Eat This Book. (laughs) And he's talking specifically about how to approach the Bible uh, spiritually, not just kind of intellectually. Listen to what he says about the Bible here. When you use the Bible for your purposes, those purposes will not necessarily require anything of you relationally. It is entirely possible to come to the Bible in total sincerity, responding to the intellectual challenge it gives or for the moral guidance that it offers or for the spiritual uplift that it provides and not in any way have to deal with a personally revealing God who has personal designs on you. Now he goes on a little bit later and he says, not everyone who gets interested in the Bible or even gets excited about the Bible wants to get involved with the God of the Bible. And I think he's right. And I think he's observed that about this, this kind of culture that we're in where we stand over the Bible. And we look and we ask questions of the Bible, which, which are okay, that, that's okay to ask questions of the Bible, and we should and we do. But this is a radically different posture that Jesus is encouraging in his disciples. And, and in, in this invitation, we see that even in the very makeup of the Bible, which I, I told you last week, most of the Bible is not facts. Most of the Bible is not laws. Most of the Bible is story and poetry. What, well, what a story do? Well, story is an invitation to enter in and be, be embedded into this thing, get lost in a story, right? 
That's what good fiction does for us. It invites us in and has us get lost in a story. And poetry, well, that's, that's formation. That's, that's deep, heart-level stuff. So if most of the Bible is story and poetry, that means most of the Bible is invitation and formation. Not just knowledge, not just facts, not just things to be critiqued, not just things to be deemed irrelevant, but things to be searched and things to be deeply considered as we deeply consider relationship with the God of the Bible. And, and you and I read differently today. In the ancient world, reading and hearing uh, orally out loud wasn't just a, a mere, like a way of getting information like we do today. You and I, we just, we just get information. Like nowadays, if you go to a news article in the New York Times or Washington Post or whatever, and you look right at the be- beginning, it'll tell you how many minutes it'll take to read this article. You gonna notice that? Why? Because we're so impatient. We don't know how to read anymore. But in the ancient world, reading and and orally learning wasn't about getting information. It was about decision-making. It was actually about kind of like solving puzzles in real life, working things out and applying them. Uh, The late missiologist Leslie Newbigin once wrote that the Bible is the way in which we come to know God because we don't know a person except by knowing his or her story. And the Bible is the story of God. It tells the story that invites us into that story, but it also forms us at a heart level and by doing so actually renews our mind. So what does that mean for you and I? Well, right here, Jesus is not saying that he's the end of the story. He's saying he's the point of the story and he's inviting us into that story because it's still unfolding today. This is why If you notice in that passage, when the disciples get it, it's not during the Bible study with Jesus. You notice that. It's crazy. If you read a little bit later in the chapter, they just finished a Bible study with Jesus and they still haven't recognized him yet. What did it take? Well, it took Jesus breaking bread with them at the table. And it says that in that moment, their eyes were open and they recognized Jesus for who he is Why? Well, because Jesus didn't write any books. He didn't leave his followers with a written manifesto. He didn't leave his followers with a holy place to kind of make pilgrimage to. Jesus left his followers with a meal. Because it's in that meal that we see it's the breaking of bread and the pouring out of the cup that we see and that we experience the redemptive power of what Jesus has done, not just by information, but by being formed from this very lived experience of the God who has entered in. It took Jesus not just informing their minds, but it took Jesus inviting them to see who he really is and having a meal with them for their eyes to be opened to who he was. There's something so tangible about that. Why? Well, because Jesus is inviting us to do life, all of life, all of the things that you and I think are just kind of, well, run of the mill. Jesus is is in those too. 
that he wants us to experience and taste and feel and be in community and, and in relationship with this triune God who is just a community of self-giving love. He wants us to experience this deep longing of, of being orphaned and wanting to get home and wanting to be happy and wanting to be fulfilled and to know that that very desire is a desire that only he can fill. Now that changes radically how we approach the Bible. And it's possible for us to search the Bible, study the Bible and know the Bible. And just like Jesus says in John 5, miss that it's actually an invitation to have life in him. So that is my encouragement for us as we continue to work through this, as we start over the next several weeks getting into some of the practical, technical stuff I want us to have the right posture towards the Bible. So for you, whatever way you are reading the Bible right now, maybe you've taken a break because you don't really know what to do with it. That's okay too. What I would say is that in any way that you're doing this, whatever your current relationship with the Bible is, whether you have a good rhythm of daily kind of studying or you, you go deeper weekly or you're already in a community that's opening it up, I would just say, make sure that just like these disciples on the road to Emmaus, we see that this is an invitation to relationship with God. The God who has come and made it possible for us to have a relationship with him in the work of Christ. And that is good news. Let me pray for us to that end. God, we, we have lots of explanations of things. We have lots of interpretations of others and that's not bad. And in fact, that's a journey that you allow us to go on because it's in that process that we end up finding you. I just pray for each of us, regardless of where we are in that journey, maybe we haven't even begun to ask questions. Maybe we haven't even begun to just debate and argue these things out like these disciples did. I just pray, Jesus, that you would be made alive in our heart, that you would question the answers that we've given that you would challenge us, that you would debate with us by the work of your spirit in our heart, and that you wouldn't just give us information, but that you would lead us to transformation at a heart level so that you shape our very person. And that for us as a church, we would reflect that imperfectly, but that we would reflect it well. And that we would understand that this is a lived experience with a very living God who has made it possible for us to be brought back to relationship with you. We ask that you would guide us and lead us as we continue to consider what this means for each of us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.